selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. Hello and welcome back to the Spiked Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and I'm here today with Spiked's deputy editor and host of The Last Orders podcast, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the protests against Anna Subri, the viral stardom of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and Brian Cranston's latest role as a disabled billionaire. Right. Um, well, apologies to you if you're I, offended by I, what I, you're listening to. I just to, think this is astonishing. <laughs> this, is, this is what has happened to our country. Come on, Sobri. Why do you think you're better than 17.4 million? Come on. You're a tough boy. I'm a tough boy. This week, outside Parliament, protesters targeted the Tory MP and arch-Remainer Anna Subri, calling her a Nazi. The response was extraordinary. MPs called on the police to ramp up security around Parliament, and many in the media called for the protesters to be locked up. Tom, have they lost their minds? I think they have lost their minds. Now, I don't want to appear callous to people who felt intimidated by some of those protesters but if you look at the videos of the protesters surrounding Anna Subri or the ones surrounding Owen Jones what they're effectively doing is shouting at them calling heckling them calling them Nazis and traitors pretty infantile stuff but you know it's a free country um, and filming them and trying to ask them questions I didn't see a single person lay a hand on anyone I didn't see anyone block anyone's way although apparently some of these protesters have been doing that elsewhere I didn't even see anyone get egged. And yet the way in which this was being discussed, you would have thought that they had been, you know, jumped outside of Parliament and beaten to within an inch of their life. And I think it's actually a pretty terrifying precedent when you've got MPs, people like Anna Subri, effectively calling on the police, as she did this week, alongside 50 MPs who wrote to the head of the Metropolitan Police, to effectively criminalise people shouting insults at them. 
And I think that that sets a very dangerous precedent. And I think it's very dangerous when you're talking about the area around Parliament, which throughout history has been a free space, you know, in um, Parliament Square and on College Green, in which many people have protested against the establishment over the years. The point at which you're talking about ramping up security around there, just because at the end of the day, a a few public figures were called names. I think that's a pretty terrible precedent to set, really. And as you've said, there's been a, you know, there's a lot of protests around that area. Politicians get protested at all the time. But um, Ella, is there a kind of double standard here? Why is this protest taken more seriously than other protests? Yeah, this is definitely a case of people having a very short term memory because uh, there have been some very serious protests against MPs in the past. If you just take the case of Nigel Farage, Mm. uh, who for a very long time has I don't want to use the word suffered, but certainly experienced quite high levels of protest and actual abuse, physical abuse. He has been egged. He has been jumped on. If you remember in 2015, his family was essentially jumped while they were having dinner at a pub by a bunch of protesters dressed up in as breastfeeding mothers and migrants. That was quite shocking <laughs> at the time. Two years before that, um, he had to be rescued by the police after pro-Scottish independence and anti-racist protesters shouted, Nigel, you're a ball bag. So, you know, <laughs> pretty infantile at the same level. Jacob Rees-Mogg last year, mm. essentially a brawl broke out and he was called Nazi and scum and all these things. The fact is, yeah, as Tom says, this is infantile. And I think it's a debasement of politics where you result to using words like Nazi, which are very historically specific. It's very crass to call, for example, K. Burley a slag, as some people have done stood outside Parliament. All of that is just stupid. But what's more stupid or more dangerous is the reaction to it. There's also a worrying thing growing in that MPs seem to believe that they are supposed to be protected from the public, forgetting Mm. that they are actual public servants. It reminds me of the time that uh, when I was at Sussex University a number of years ago, David Willits, who was then the education minister, took a student to court for calling him a coward. I mean, there's been a long history Mm. of Mm. of MPs thinking that they are uh, above public scrutiny. Are we saying that we are living in a free society where we can criticise our politicians or not? Or are they royalty and we can't yeah. touch. I think, that, I think that's right. I think there is now an expectation of deference from some MPs, you know, especially especially in relation to online where people see the, mere, the slightest hint of insult as abusive. So for instance, you know, there was a Tory MP, Antoinette Sandbach, who actually phoned the police on a constituent because they had a disagreement over Brexit. So there seems to be a, a lot of MPs who are very thin skinned and simply cannot take an insult and B, a lot of them who I think expect to be treated as as royalty they expect deference rather than to be engaged with politically i know and and just on the question of double standards and and the word nazi i mean if we're actually going to go around setting the precedent which hurling the word nazi at someone you disagree with is a criminal offense then there's going to be barely anyone on the left left after it i mean it's that's become the go-to insult for anyone um who just so happens to be to the right of center for quite a long time in this country but i think it's it's worth noting of course that one of the protesters involved in this kind of weird very small gilet jaune tribute act which has been going on outside of parliament is this guy called james goddard there's been a fair bit of reporting on him he is by all accounts seemingly a xenophobic scumbag came up through various kind of campaigns one out of west london this kind of justice for our boys campaign which is basically putting about this conspiracy theory that a hit and run was actually some sort of terrorist attack that was covered up this is not to say that these individuals are just 
ordinary people expressing their views representative of the thwarted Brexit masses. That's clearly not the case. They do have their own agenda. They're also quite illiberal. I actually found his Gab profile, which is that kind of free speech alternative to Twitter. The first thing in his profile says free speech, but then he uses quite liberal use of the hashtag ban Islam. So um, mm. tells you something about their commitment to freedom. But nevertheless, and this is a point that particularly the left forget time and time again, is that in defending these people's right to protest, you're not defending the content of their views you're just saying that again as long as people don't cross the line into violence and threats that they have a right to be there they have a right to make their voices heard and that it's incredibly dangerous not to defend those rights because the lesson of history is that again if you create a precedent whereby protest can be clamped down upon it will reach you i mean the conversation this week has been about the public order act 1986 which our columnist luke gittos wrote about this week people saying that this needed to be enforced properly and needed to be enforced across the board a lot of people on the left making this argument first of all the fact that that public order act 1986 was an explicitly anti-left-wing piece of legislation Mm. that was brought in by the thatcher administration in the wake of the brixton riots and the miners strike and also the history of public order legislation in this country has been an agitation for them in the response to kind of far-right threats you know the british union of fascists back in the 30s etc but then being used time and time again against the left as well and a lot of people who were agitating for them suddenly wondering why that had happened it's because you have to defend these things on the basis of principle and it doesn't matter who the people are exercising those rights whether it's a james goddard or anyone else you set a very dangerous precedent if you go around basically trying to call the police in to deal with these people Um, and one kind of uh, question that it it raises or or has been posed a lot by this is, is what's the difference between harassment and genuine protest and it seems to me looking at a lot of the commentary from particularly people like owen jones people on the on the left it's harassment when I don't like the people mm. and I disagree with their message. And it's legitimate protest if they're my friends and I and I agree with what they're saying. Because, you know, as we might all recall, John McDonnell saying a number of years ago during the coalition government that Tory ministers and Lib Dem ministers shouldn't be allowed to show their face in public without being hounded. And you know what? I think that's fair enough. I think if you disagree with an MP, you have absolutely every right to protest them. But... The fact is that many on the left can't see a continuity between those things. They simply say, well, one is protest, one is harassment. And clearly, the, it is entirely subjective, the difference between the two. And we cannot allow the authorities to decide which is which. Just to bring it back to Anna Subri, I mean, she, uh, during a television interview, hugged the guy, I don't know his name, who stands in a top hat shouting, stop Brexit, through every single <laughs> interview. Steve, is it? Steve, oh, yeah. Yeah. and has been doing for months. He's been he's ruined some of my interviews. Uh, but he, she hugged him and said, oh, I know Steve, he's great. So, you know, Steve wasn't calling her a Nazi or a slag or any of the kind of stupid stuff that the other people were shouting. But he was being a harassing annoyance. He was protesting, fair enough. You have to remember that Anna Subri has positioned herself as one of the top anti-Brexit politicians. So fair enough that people are really angry at her. Well, the other thing that's worth noting is that this whole discussion about the harassing of politicians, and as Ella was just saying, in relation to Brexit, happens at the same week in which there's been two pretty huge votes in Parliament, whereby Parliament are effectively trying to wrest back control of the Brexit process from the executive, allegedly to try and stop the excesses of executive overreach, but we all know why they're doing it, to try and stop Brexit happening entirely at the moment, to try and take no deal 
off the table. And I just think, to tack on to what Ella's saying, I think it's absolutely remarkable that you have politicians who are actively going against the wishes, in some cases, of their actual own constituents. You know, um, Anna Subri represents Broxtow, voted relatively heavily to leave. People seem to forget this. And the idea that they should expect no blowback, the idea that as soon as someone heckles them on the street, this should be, you know, the forces of the arm wing of the state should be rallied to protect them from it, I think just shows that they. it's almost like they either they're refusing to recognise what it is they're doing or they're just bluffing their way through this. I think it's absolutely remarkable that there's been as little protest as there has been. really hope you're enjoying the show so far i'd just like to take a really quick moment to say a massive thank you to everyone who has been donating to spiked i know loads of you who listen have either donated in the past or make regular monthly donations and it's honestly thanks to your contributions and your generosity that we can keep going and growing spiked has some really exciting plans for the year ahead with our podcast and we need the help of listeners and readers like you it's your donations that will allow us to make that happen so if you haven't before do please consider making a donation or even better setting up a monthly donation it's really easy to do i promise just go to spiked-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner thank you so much and now back to the show Newly elected Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is rarely out of the spotlight. Last week, she was at the centre of a confected Twitter storm over a video of her dancing back in college. So what's behind all the fuss about AOC? What the last couple of weeks have shown is that it's on the one hand a large level of enthusiasm about her, obviously from certain sections of uh, the left in America, but also this tendency for her to become this kind of all-purpose kind of (laughs) culture war target, I guess. Mm. I mean, this whole discussion about Ocasio-Cortez has really been exploded in the last couple of weeks around this video that this kind of online right-wing troll dug up of her during her college years at Boston University doing this dance routine, (laughs) um, putting it up there saying that this was the nitwit that everyone in the Democratic Party is very excited about. And then there being this huge backlash amongst Ocasio-Cortez and her supporters. She even putting out a video of her kind of dancing a little bit outside of her congressional office saying that I hear the GOP don't like women dancing. So here you go. (laughs) Now, it's important to note that this in particular was an entirely confected scandal. You know, it was a handful of anonymous accounts who were tweeting about this despairingly. Um, those accounts have since been deleted. And I haven't seen a a single Republican of any stature, certainly, say anything to the effect of they think it's scandalous that women are dancing. But nevertheless, I think it does show one thing about the Ocasio-Cortez phenomenon, which Brendan O'Neill wrote about this week, which is she is, to a large extent, become a kind of social media phenomenon. Mm. She's someone who is very popular on Twitter, very popular on social media, and seems to have become the centre for a lot of these, in some cases, quite confected battles and he makes the point that in many respects she's the first twitter politician a kind of meme made flesh and i think after the past week it's, it, you could easily say that that is the case yeah a nice little fact she has more twitter followers than all of her fellow newly elected democratic congresswomen combined she has more twitter followers than nancy pelosi the speaker mm. of the house who's been involved in politics for for decades and and i think it's absolutely true to say that you know her her whole um, shtick revolves around the internet. You know, she is constantly posting Instagram updates. Um, people get really excited about every tweet and every post and are, and are hanging on her every word, seemingly. And yet you have to remind yourself, she was only sworn in last week. 
you know, and yet she's this superstar, all things to all people. Yeah. She's a um, the great hope of the socialist left for some. And then she's a dangerous Marxist to, <laughs> you know, the folks at Fox News. And it is completely a phantasm. It is a complete projection of basically whatever people are thinking at the moment. You can just project it onto this you know, young woman. Yeah, she's. it's very weird, the situation of so-called AOC, because on the one hand, yeah, she is this radical new hope. Uh, she's seen as very controversial, revolutionary. People talk about her being the queen from Queens. Mm. Um, and then Vogue, you know, can you imagine a more establishment, uh, <laughs> yeah. posh, rich magazine, Vogue, ran an article saying that she might just be the future of the Democratic Party. Mm. I mean, she's she's also being quite quickly subsumed into that, the Democrat Party said she isn't going to be even, I think, a Bernie Sanders type figure. No. There's there's no promise ever being anything like that. Mm. She's just a young woman who's a bit fiery, uh, quite charismatic, um, and certainly knows how to work social media. Only last night, um, it came out that the Daily Caller, right-wing publication, published a story uh, with their headline saying, is this a nude selfie of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? <laughs> oh, it was a picture from Reddit of someone's feet in a bath, which wasn't her feet. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's completely ridiculous. You could even push it to say, you know, trying to be insulting, you know, publishing mm. a headline saying, is this a nude picture of a, of a politician? Um, but instead of just brushing it off, instead of just saying, what a load of rubbish... Again, she comes out and says, this is what happens when women run for office. You know, this is what happens when women get involved in politics. Using the kind of right-wing salacious obsession mm. with her as a means to bolster herself, as a means to push her popularity by saying, look, I am the, the female hope for all this horrible mess of misogyny. I mean, like you said, she's only just <laughs> come into her position. It's yet We're yet to see what she does. But I can't see this social media phenomenon translating into uh, real life consequences. I mean, there's no reason why just because she has 2.2 million Twitter followers, she's going to be a good politician. Yeah, I think that's right. I think I think what's interesting, she, her, I've, her words were, I'm being overly scrutinised in yeah. relation to this nude photo. And, and I think, yes, that's true. She is being overly scrutinised because... You know, she, but she's also being overly celebrated, exactly, and that's, exactly. that seems to me to be the crux of it. Because aside from the kind of you know the right wing idiocy that presents anyone who's slightly to the left of Nancy Pelosi in America, or just Nancy Pelosi, you know, if you <laughs> even to, she's a socialist. She, she's some sort of you know California uh, crypto Marxist, according to <laughs> some people. But nevertheless, I think you do also have to look at the claims that she's making about herself and the claims mm. that her supporters are making about her, because it really is blowing her um, radicalness um, and her importance way out of proportion. First of all, her claim was that she represented this new, diverse, working-class movement in America when she won this huge upset in the Democratic primary in June in the 14th Congressional District of New York. So she beat Joe Crowley, who was really part of the Democratic machine there, had, um, was very close to Nancy Pelosi, had been around for a very long time. But as Politico pointed out, if you actually went precinct by precinct, the places that voted very heavily for Ocasio-Cortez were the whiter, more affluent, more gentrified parts of the district and the places that voted very overwhelmingly for Crowley turned out to be the Hispanic and African-American working class communities. And that one funny thing about that campaign was she was made gentrification a big plank of her campaigning. And yet it really was the gentrifiers um, who backed mm. her in the end. And then on this claim that she is some socialist, she calls herself a democratic socialist. 
Um, it's not entirely clear what that means. I mean, I saw one interview with her on the progressive podcast, Pod Save America, mm. and the host quite reasonably said, look, I believe in single-payer healthcare, one of her main pledges. I believe that college should be free, but I still consider myself, and I think he's accurate in describing himself as such, a liberal Democrat who believes in regulated capitalism. Yeah. Um, so how are you different to me? And she really couldn't answer the question. She ended up saying something to the effect of, I'm it just means something that's a little bit more radical than your average Democrat. You know, she's one of these people who genuinely says effectively that her policies are really about bringing the Democrats more in line with like the Labour Party in the United Kingdom or about or Sweden, etc. This is not a socialist programme, you know, by any stretch of the imagination. But on the one hand, it's ridiculous to suggest that she represents real radical change. She's, you know, there's not a hell of a lot of difference between her and someone like Nancy Pelosi. As a lot of people have said, this is a difference in style more than anything else. And I think that's pretty correct but then again that makes it all the more ridiculous that you've got these right-wing pundits saying she wants to put them on a fast track to venezuela you know Mm. it kind of speaks to the childishness of the debate the kind of strange mixing of political categories in this discussion um that she's taken this seriously either by you know the left or the right in that respect and what's interesting actually about the style she's very much in the mold of modern identity politics Mm. it's the college campus style and so it's actually completely unsurprising that, as you said it's it's the wealthier parts of new york that supported her it's it's also unsurprising that the democratic socialists of America are talked up as this this great phenomenon of this new hope for the Democratic Party, but are struggling to win support beyond those kind of hipster, gentrified neighbourhoods. Lots of people clearly are having a lot of fun playing at being socialists while uh, actually being kind of ignored by normal working people. I think this is definitely where social media plays an important role because you don't have to win over workers or uh, mass working class voters if you're able to pose as something on social media. One of the things that was really interesting uh, within that Vogue article celebrating uh, Cortez as the kind of new radical hope was a video of her visiting a child migrant centre with about 15 to 20 maybe more uh, reporters, people filming, taking pictures around her. It was her and one other woman shouting at a guard there um, saying, free the children, free the children, the border guard taking no notice. I mean, it was just such a stunt. Mm-hmm. It was ridiculous. It, it was embarrassing, actually. Um, not only because they were all dressed in white for some reason. It was a very weird video. <laughs> but, She's an angel. <laughs> yeah, but, but and the message was really clear. Look how much I care. I mm. go with my entourage to the border, to a fence, in the dust and the heat, and I shout at border guards. You know, and but... I don't know what she would do to actually make some difference. What talk to Mexican voters, talk to Latina voters, get that kind of support, actually launch some kind of a campaign against it. I mean, she may well do in the future, but it shows that this is sort of where I think the Democrat Party is, both parties, but certainly the Democrats are failing in challenging Trump is that they keep pinning their hopes on these sort of social media stars yeah. mm-hmm. who are just going to like a match kind of burn out within what a year maybe how long can this popularity last mm. and I think just on Fraser's point about identity politics it's in if anything she's this kind of character who's this weird fusion of like supposedly socialist politics and identity politics insofar as almost socialism becoming a kind of identity yeah it doesn't necessarily have to have a lot of intellectual rigor to it it doesn't even necessarily have to apply to socialist policies as we might generally understand them But for instance, she did 60 Minutes in the past week um, and she was pulled up on the fact that she's been fact-checked a few times by the Washington Post, by PolitiFact, etc. I think she put out a tweet in which she suggested that the Pentagon could have paid for Medicare for all and apparently that wasn't strictly correct. Now, that kind of nitpicking fact-checking can be quite irritating and she Mm. made the point 
which is a fair point to make that some people are more focused on being ex- exactly right rather than morally right. But nevertheless, I think that did underscore something quite important, which is unfortunately socialism has for a long time, both in the UK and America, to the extent which it was talked about there, just become to mean being a good person. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting is that though I think Ocasio-Cortez deserves a bit of credit for what she said previously, which is to say you can't just wail at Trump. You have to look at the reasons people voted for him, etc. Nevertheless, I think one thing that does put people off is it is that kind of sense of moral righteousness, that sense of virtue signalling, that transformation of what previously might have been an economic programme into just a kind of image, really, mm. which I think is, A, not really going to win a lot of people over, but actually will probably put a lot of people off as well. Hi there, I really hope you're enjoying the show so far. And if you are, why not help us spread the word? One really, really simple way of doing that is by giving us a rating and a review with your podcast provider. It won't take you very long, but honestly, it will make a massive, massive difference for us. So we'd be hugely grateful if you could just take a tiny bit of time to give us a rating and a review. Right, back to the show. Breaking Bad star Brian Cranston has defended his decision to play a quadriplegic billionaire in the comedy drama The Upside. He said, which might seem obvious to some, that as actors, we're asked to be other people to play other people. So what's behind this kind of controversy? I mean, this isn't the first time actors have been pulled up for representing something that they're not. You know, there's a real fascination now with the idea of authenticity that you have to actually be a disabled person to play a disabled figure in a fictional tale um, or you have to be gay to play a gay person all this kind of stuff so Brian Cranston now is just the latest person to feel the ire of identitarians mm-hmm. as they're called using the word problematic you know Brian Cranston <laughs> is that horrible word problematic um, and fair play to him because he's just come out and said I'm an actor yeah anyone who's got any interest in the arts knows that you the whole skill and the art of being an actor is to pretend like you're someone else and pretend so convincingly that it is genuinely authentic because then you, you, you know, the audience believes you. I mean, he, I'm pretty sure in saying that he didn't become a drug addict or a drug cartel, you know, runner when he was playing Breaking Bad. Um, maybe he wasn't even a dad when he was in Malcolm in the Middle. I mean, you know, it, <laughs> it, it's a kind of ridiculous situation, but it has, this has happened time and time again. But it's refreshing for someone to actually come out and defend the art and the skill of acting, which mm. means pretending to be someone that you're not. Exactly. And obviously this comes in the context of not just questions about disabled actors playing disabled roles, but obviously a lot of questions about LGBT representation mm. and a lot of really quite increasingly kind of ludicrous scandals. You know, you had the discussion a couple of months back about whether or not Jack Whitehall should play Disney's allegedly first openly gay character in a film, which, as I remember, it was about a, which was based on a theme park ride. Um, so not exactly <laughs> Oscar winning material, but there was this discussion about how he shouldn't have been given that role around the same time. You had the actress Ruby Rose, who was used to play Cat woman in a tv series despite the fact that she is gay and catwoman is also gay that she wasn't gay enough apparently mm. so that there there is a kind of ridiculous level to this and it does resurrect typecasting actually in that respect and this is something that actually ben wishaw talked about this week in interviews around the golden globes where he was asked about the actor um darren chris who played um jenny versace's gay assassin in that fx series um who quite you know 
came out with this wonderful statement that he was no longer going to play gay characters. And Wishaw actually said, hold on a second. I think the, the best op- situation we could be in is that more gay actors can play straight roles and vice versa. Um, but nevertheless, I think it's important to note that there is a bit more nuance to the question of kind of disabled actors. Mm. There's um, a disabled actor and campaigner called Adam Pearson, who I've um, debated on TV about this, um, who is a very nice bloke, very sound on a lot of these issues. And the point he makes is just that a lot of the time, in terms of disabled actors, it's difficult for them to get in the room. It's difficult yeah. for them to get an audition. They're not necessarily necessarily seen as bankable in the same way that um, a Brian Cranston might be and he points out that despite the fact there's various kind of very Oscar worthy performances which have won at the Academy over the years if you think about My Left Foot or things like this mm. there's very very few disabled actors who have actually been given those kinds of roles and those kinds of accolades nevertheless I think even he has conceded that this doesn't mean that you have to go around casting someone d- whose exact experience mirrors that of their character because at the end of the day that is called acting frankly I, I think one of the things that it represents to me is that is the way that um you know we now see culture as the means through which we correct society's problems so if you know for instance we see black people or lgbt people as disadvantaged the route to changing that is to have better representation on the silver screen and you know that's kind of a problem really for me because it it means that we're not dealing with issues at at the political level we're bypassing the politics almost and we're treating audiences as kind of thickos who need to have the right messages drummed into them in order to make them um, more progressive, essentially. You know, and, and what's interesting is that actually casting decisions should be an artistic one. Oh, and we rarely talk about them on an artistic level. It's talked about purely on the level of representation, purely on the level of identity. And, you know, the art is element of it sidelined. You can see that in the case of how many films there are with actors with bad accents. I mean, (laughs) I am appalled at the number of Irish films that employ British or American people to do dreadful Irish accents. Why can't they just find authentic Irish actors? But what the serious point I'm making is that this isn't about, if it was just about, as Tom says, getting work for disabled actors, um, giving more opportunities to people, I don't see any reasonable person having a problem with that. Mm -hmm. But actually what this is about is saying that it's damaging, it's problematic, it's offensive to have non-disabled people play disabled roles, or as we've seen in some other cases, light-skinned black people playing dark-skinned roles, Mm. or uh, straight people playing gay roles. You know, it gets very ugly very quickly. And that is really about making a judgment on the audience and what the audience needs you know the political message that the audience needs to be fed rather than talking about artistic freedom and it also kind of just again is incredibly philistine in relation to casting in relation to characterization i mean it almost suggests that if you have a gay character or a disabled character whatever that they're defined by their identity Mm. in that film whether it's a person from reality and a kind of biopic or whether it's or whether it's a fictional character the idea that they can just be boiled down to their sexual preference or yeah. how able-bodied they are. Human beings are incredibly complicated and actors, for all different various reasons, are better placed or less better placed to inhabit that character based on their own skills, different life experiences they draw on, etc. It's incredibly philistine to suggest that just because you happen to have the same sexual preferences as a character you might be able to portray, that you can inhabit that person any better than anyone else. You know, I think it speaks to the increasingly philistine times we live in that this debate seems to kind of rage on and on and on. And it does just kind of put, again, a bit of a increasing kind of pressure on artistic freedom, on directors, on casting directors, etc., 
of making decisions that they want to make. And whilst, again, we can talk about access, we can talk about opportunity, again, it does come down to the fact that people are making these decisions for the, for a whole range of reasons. And if you try and just subject it to a kind of more political agenda, you're only really going to bastardise the format in that respect. You've been listening to The Spike Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to give us a rating, a review, or even make a donation. We'll be back next week, but for more Spike content every day, visit spiked-online.com. Selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. <laughs>